Good morning, afternoon, evening. Is it midnight where you are too? Welcome. I am so happy and filled with joy that you clicked on this podcast. And you might have even actually typed it in the search bar. Well, thank you so much. I am so delighted to be able to do these interviews and uh, have a chance for y'all out there to absorb this information from these amazing guests. And speaking of amazing guests, this week I was able to chat with an amazing nonviolent communication trainer. Her name is Dr. Yvette Erasmus. Such amazing information, and it's it's so interesting that this is really, I feel like emotions can be very complex and feelings very complex. And she is able to break it down in a way that's so easily digestible. And it sounds like she has a, a good time doing it. It was such an honor to be able to, you know, just be on the other side of that conversation. So to kind of outline what we talk about, you know, we, and mostly what she talks about is uh, this difference between control and connection. And then getting into nonviolent communication, rather than kind of going through the steps, she looks at what's behind the steps. What's the inner work that kind of has to be done before really putting this practice to use? And then later in the conversation, we get into reclaiming parts of us that you know, we just pushed away and, and trying to accept these emotions for a better union of self. So without further ado, I will stop blabbing so you can listen to our conversation on Compassion Talk with Dr. Yvette Erasmus. We are here with Yvette, Dr. Yvette Erasmus, I'm a nonviolent communication trainer, coach, therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so glad to have you here with us on Zoom from Minnesota. Yes, from Minneapolis, exactly. All right, well, so glad to have you here. It's so good to be here. Good, great. <laughs> so, um, like I mentioned, you have been a nonviolent communication trainer for mm-hmm. uh, upwards of 20 plus years mm-hmm. in that field of uh, relationships and guiding people through that realm of the concept nonviolent communication. Um, mm-hmm. So just kind of to start off, could you maybe give us, give us your understanding of nonviolent communication and yeah. what it means sure. to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, um, so not, I first came across nonviolent communication really when I was working as a high school teacher in Bali. So I was actually living in Bali, Indonesia, um, teaching at Bali International School. And my mother sent me some books from the States. She had been to a training with Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who's the founder of nonviolent communication. And so my mother sent me some books on education and I remember reading them 
um, as I was living in Bali thinking this resonates, this is exactly what I think education should be. And this is, you know, like this is my deep philosophy and theoretical orientation for life. And everything is like making my heart open. And it's just everything that I want. And it's so impractical, but it'll never work in my classroom, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, and then there were things that were happening in my classrooms and I thought, well, I'll just try this piece or I'll just try that piece or, you know, um, and I began bringing in elements and, and then I began seeing changes um, in my classroom. And so that's really when I got really immersed in the study of nonviolent communication. Um, you know, as I began to see little bits and pieces making incremental differences, I wanted more and more and more of it because I began to realize that there's a lot of my own programming and my own assumptions and my own conditioning that's getting in the way of seeing through situations in a way that I really valued. So, you know, one of the, um, do you want me to do just a little bit of an, uh, like a, an overview of some of the main concepts? Would this be a good place to do that? Or yeah. Sure. Okay. So, you know, like one of the main things that I found incredibly useful initially as an educator was the distinction between um, when we're trying to control an outcome and when we're trying to connect with a human being. You know, that there's this central intention discernment that we're asked to become more aware of. You know, every time you communicate and you communicate verbally and non-verbally. So anything, you know, in fact, in some of my trainings, I often say to people, communication is your way of being the words you use are an aspect of communication but you're never not communicating when you walk into a room the way you carry yourself the facial expression the energy around you the the way you are is inherently communicating something all the time and so when we're thinking through a compassion and consciousness and nonviolence lens that's a really really important aspect to be tuning into, that it's much more than the words. But you know, I was an English language teacher. I love words, I love literature, I love everything to do with verbal conscious, you know, material. Like that's a deep love of mine. Um, but then to enrich it, you know, all of that goodness with like a way of being with the central discernment of what is my intention when I'm interacting with another human? Um, and also with myself, is my intention to control, to micromanage, to exert power over, which is really as an educator, what I was trained in, you know, or is my intention to see the humanity and the dignity and the, the internal being of this other subjectivity and to be in connection with this other diverse subjectivity in the world and to be in relationship. And that central shift from orienting my relationships, both as an educator, as a therapist, as a family member, as a friend, as a, you know, whatever, whatever role I'm in, from being one where my job is primarily to control and change and micromanage into orienting into a different relational frame where the goal is to be in relationship and to be in a different kind of relationship and to enjoy it more. This was a hugely liberating concept for me. And as I began to apply some of that in my classroom, where my focus wasn't so much on micromanaging the children, um, but to see this collection of humans in a room together where we had a shared goal of being together, learning, growing, exploring, 
Um, it fundamentally changed the culture of my classrooms, my way of being as an educator. And I was so inspired by what I found coming back my way, like power struggles actually decreased, you know, and it's one of the most unpleasant things as a teacher is when you're engaged in constant power struggles. Um, and when that began to shift, just with this intention shift, um, I mean, like the first piece being that we have a different intention for the relational frame. But then the second piece, you know, the piece that nonviolent communication particularly brings is this attention practice, like getting really aware of what we're doing with our attention. What are we attending to? And then how does that influence how we're perceiving things and also influence the meaning that we're making? Um, and so the attention practice, you know, being from not being so evaluative and getting into neutral observation, that's the first distinction of NBC. And then the second one, which is recognizing the cognitive privileging that our educational system does, where we're really trained to develop our cognitive, analytic, critical thinking muscles, mm. but sometimes to the exclusion of really being grounded in what we're feeling, what's coming alive in us, what energies are moving through us, how it's impacting us. So bringing that back online, caring actually about the impact of things. And then the third distinction of, you know, as a teacher being really focused on all my good strategies and rewards and punishments and consequences. And if that, if then, if that sort of interactions, if you do this, then I'm going to do that, you know, this cause and effect piece, like really understanding all of those strategies and then moving into like this awareness of intrinsic motivators that are driving us all the time. And really tuning into what are the intrinsic motivations that I have, that you have, that we have, and how do those in a very emergent and organic way, how are those designed to actually pull us forward in a way that doesn't need so many power struggles and so much resistance? And then the fourth distinction of not making all of these demands and really having a more partnership-oriented, collaborative, inviting, co-creative way of being where we have a lot of requests of one another and we don't get so attached to outcomes all the time and we're willing to work with process and flow you know that was a massive paradigm shift for me and um yeah and so i came back to the states at that point and i immersed myself in the study and changed my career and you know so yeah and so you started you said this was in indonesia when you began how was like implementing this this uh concept of nonviolent communication and even like the culture of indonesia and then starting mm -hmm. to see some shifts okay okay i'm i kind of like what i'm i'm uh -huh. seeing of this and then uh -huh. moving that into the american culture was that did you find it was a much bigger like brick wall that you had to climb over um at least yeah <laughs> i wouldn't say the difference was so much in the culture where i find the biggest difference is in this the size of the institution mm. so you know in bali bali international school when i taught there you know in the early 2000s um it was a small school k through 12 was about 240 50 kids total yeah so tiny so when you have a small school, you know, with under 30 staff members, um, 
you can, you know, there's a lot more relationship and it's a smaller system also is influenced, you know, changes in that system have a bigger impact. So you can begin seeing more results, you know, like some of my classes had eight kids in them. So if you start doing something differently with eight kids or eight other people, you know, it's easier, it's a more flexible system. When I came back to the States and I began working with public school systems in Minneapolis, and we're talking about three, 4,000 students with a lot of institutional power, it's much more difficult. There's a bigger momentum and a bigger center of gravity. And so there's a lot more needed in order to get more change at that you know, layer, which is in part why I choose to work with smaller organizations and I do individual therapy and I work with couples and families. Like it's just more satisfying. You can see more change at that level than when you go super systemic. Now the systems all need to change. And there are some people in the world that are, you know, jazzed up about that. And I think we all have a part to play. Um, mine is I get more satisfaction out of the micro, <laughs> the helping people with their internalized oppression, mm -hmm. you know, with the ways in which they've um, absorbed those institutions and how those institutions now live inside of them. And then I can help them detox that in your own psyche. <laughs> this is much more satisfying to me. Um, but not to say that, um, you know, they, it needs to work in conjunction with systemic change. It's just that that's not my particular focus. Right, right. Yeah. And that is kudos to you for, you know, because I, I cannot imagine the uh, not only having to implement this for yourself, but then having to try to guide people and yep. implementing it into their lives. And yeah. Uh, well, you know, a lot of people who study nonviolence and have been studying nonviolence for a very, very long time will say things like, you'll hear this often in the communities, like, when you first find nonviolent communication, the first five to 10 years are entirely internal work. Mm. Like, you know, we facetiously almost say, don't even take the language model and go and try to do that to other people in your life because it won't work. Mm. You know, the first change that is needed is really detoxing some of the internalized systems of domination um, that we're living in. And the language practice, you know, the, the language structure that Marshall Rosenberg gave us um, at least the way I see it, is that it's best seen as a consciousness transformation model than only a communication model. And you can use it as a communication model. I mean, he gives us a really nice structure. When I notice, insert neutral observation, I feel, insert feeling word. I need, because I need, insert need word. And would you be willing, insert a request? It's a lovely, it's a very simple, lovely little communication model. But here's what happens is people will start learning the, the model. And then at least I'll, I'll talk about myself for a moment. Like I learned this model and I'm like, okay, great. I finally have a way to get what I need. Like if I can just say it right now that I know how to say it right, I can get what I need. And so I go to all the people in my life and I'm like, okay, so when you walk in the door late, I feel really irritated because I have a need for trust. So would you be willing to show up on time, <laughs> you know, and then I don't get a new result. And they still react to me as if I'm saying, I hate it when you're late and you need to show up on time, you know, so, right. So then you learn that actually it's the consciousness that those words are trying to point you to that is needed. And there's a shift in our way of being that is needed. And there's a shift in how we are no longer seeing and thinking through this lens of 
What is wrong with you that needs to be changed? What is wrong with me that needs to be changed? Because that thinking frame of what is wrong is domination. It is one of the primary tools of domination systems is to get the people to believe that there is something wrong with themselves and one another because they will spend a tremendous amount of energy trying to change themselves and change other people and not see through the system itself, mm. you know? And so then we kind of get our attention in the wrong place. And so one of the things that we do, and I use this a lot, I mean, you know, I'm also a trained clinical psychologist. So clinical psychology also has its own version of a domination model that, you know, is needing to be detoxed. And I hope we get there in the next 50 years, but it's a lot more about tapping into the inherent intelligence of the organic system and paying attention to what wants to emerge, what is the next step in healing. You know, if I, if I cut myself, my body knows how to heal the cut. I don't need to micromanage it and put it on a timeline. I don't need to look down at that cut and say, okay, we have a vision and a mission, and here's the strategic plan, and here are your deadlines for forming a scab, for creating platelets. Like, we don't do that. Life will take care of it. And in some ways, um, we need to get out of the way. And so in our relationships and in our cultures, I think nonviolent communication gives us a really beautiful gateway to what it might mean to get out of the way and to be with one another in a new way. Wow. Wow. I really like this. That idea of getting out of the way. I, 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 uh, oh, I recalled somebody uh, mentioning how, yeah, it's like, do you know how you're kidney works or are you going to try and it's just naturally yeah. happening and yes. a lot of times conflict is is just naturally happening or even just just the conversation and it's yeah. like it's it's not so much of a having to force it but dancing with yes. it maneuvering with it yes this is a lot more about learning to enjoy life to see what's wonderful about life and also making peace with pain you know, it's about making peace with the wide range of human emotions that we might be feeling. You know, a domination system wants us to only feel a narrow bandwidth of good feelings and everything else. We either numb out or we act out. We don't have a lot of emotional intelligence built into domination systems because domination systems are power structures where a few people get access to resources and everybody else is used for you for resources mm -hmm. you know and so we're wanting to transform some of that not that you know something that i often uh, come across in some of my trainings is that there's a difference between a growth hierarchy and a dominator hierarchy and we do need hierarchy of course we need hierarchy not everything is you know like there's a way that we sometimes want to flatten everything as if there's no difference and everything is the same and i i don't believe in that but we want to be wise and discerning about the kinds of hierarchies that really serve life. You know, if I, if I want, um, if I need open heart surgery, I don't want to just take anyone, you know, who has good intentions, you know, out there to be like, here's a scalpel. And I think this is how the anesthetic works and, you know, go to town because we're all equal, mm -hmm. you know, like that's nonsense. And I want to go find the most highly trained expert who's walked down a particular path, who knows much more than I do mm -hmm. 
you know, and who has power over me in, in that sense. You know, I want to trust them with a capacity that they've developed that I haven't developed. Mm. There are hierarchies, natural hierarchies, that we defer to one another for expertise and guidance. And the problem is when we say that, you know, one identity group or one uh, degree, or we lose our discernment, we paint with broad strokes where they no longer work in a life-affirming way. And I think part of um, practices like, you know, mindfulness, nonviolent communication, personal development journeys, they, they really help us get in touch with the data we do need in order to make wise discernments in those fields and the difference between things that are oppressive and things that are really life affirming. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I would really like to kind of focus on, so you had mentioned earlier that kind of these first steps. So there's the nonviolent communication model, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but in order to properly use this information, there's got to be some internal work that has to be done. Mm -hmm. Would you mind kind of describing in a way what that work might look like? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, <clears throat> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reframe it just a little bit. <clears throat> Um, as an example of how nonviolent communication might work. So we wouldn't think that there's work that has to be done. We'd be thinking about it through the frame of, um, as you begin making some changes and seeing new options, there may be things coming up that you want to heal. And there may be things coming up that you want to become more aware of and more conscious of. And there may be ways in which you'd like more freedom and choicefulness and inner peace in your life. And you may hit blocks inside of you where you discover that that's not what got internalized. Um, and so then you have a choice. You know, one of the things about nonviolent communication is a deep, deep emphasis on choicefulness in all moments. That every time I tell myself, I should do something, I must do something, I have to do something. Every time we find that language in our speaking out loud or in the way in which we are thinking to ourselves, that is domination language. It gives, it's a denial of choice. And human beings do not like to have their choices denied. We have equal drives for attachment on autonomy. We want to be connected and we want to be free. Mm, mm. And it's hardwired. We, we have a drive for intense freedom, but also connectedness, deep connectedness with one another. And um, this is a polarity that we manage in our lives, you, you know, and when they're well balanced, they serve each other really, really well. They actually enhance the goodness of one another. If I feel really free in a relationship, I'm more likely to also feel attached to the relationship. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that I feel really safe and secure in my relationship, I have a lot of freedom and choice in me. But if the only thing I ever care about is freedom, 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 I'm going to have a lot of insecurity, mm. right? If it's out of balance or if I have attachment, attachment, security, safety, I'm going to throttle the life out of something because people are going to be like, oh my goodness, I need more freedom to move. I need more choices. Okay. So <laughs> where was I going with that? There was something you were asking. Oh, about have to energy. Mm. So, um, yeah, so, so when we're doing the inner work, we start finding all the ways that we've internalized and been programmed to think through shoulds, 
have-tos, moralistic judgments, um, the values of other people imposed upon us, the things that we absorbed as children, the, you know, depending upon your own um, culture and family system and the experiences that each individual had as they were growing up developmentally, needs that were met, needs that were not met. Some people get into adulthood and they, their needs to be seen and known and accepted are chronically unmet. Their needs for self-connection are chronically unmet. Um, their needs for any sort of meaning and purpose might be chronically unmet. And so we, we become adults with a, a combination of things that worked and things that didn't work and pain that we stored for later and things that we enjoy and temperaments and preferences. And then I think this journey of becoming a fully mature, free, loving grown-up is one in which we're invited to turn inward first and to have a look at what have I now inherited? What was given to me? And of the things that I inherited and that I experienced and that I internalized and that I took on, which pieces is the sorting period that happens? What do I want to carry forward? And what do I want to leave behind? Mm. And so there's consciousness work, there's compassion work. A lot of it is, um, you know, I was just working with, I, I love my clients, but I was working with the most delightful couple earlier on today, where we were really going through, this is not about badness and wrongness. There's nothing, you know, because people can find themselves in relationships where they suddenly find themselves doing things that they don't believe in, you know, and they have this like, why do I keep doing that? I don't even, I don't even believe it. I wish I didn't do this thing and I know better, but I keep finding myself in these patterns. Yeah. And so it's going to be very painful to change anything about ourselves if we're also busy judging it. And so the first practice of nonviolence, you know, in the internal world is greeting everything that arises with curiosity and compassion and a way of soothing ourselves. You know, this is what I learned to do as a kid. Right. This is just what I learned to do as a kid. And I don't have to do it anymore, but I understand why it's there. I understand why I may have needed that at some point. And now I'm older and wiser and I can begin rewiring this and doing it differently. But I really want to greet myself with a lot of permission to be an imperfect, wounded work in progress. And as soon as we can orient to that, then the personal growth journey, it's like putting fertilizer on it because I don't have so much shame that comes up at the same time or so much defensiveness that comes up at the same time. Because if I can be in this place of shared humanity where, you know what, we all got into, child, into adulthood with wounds, with pains, with defenses, with reactivity, with triggers, with unconsciousness. That's the ground that we all begin in. Now let's hold hands and let's do something about it. Oh, you know, yeah. and we're in it together and there are no bad people here. And there's a lot of things that each generation passes down. And ideally each generation says, okay, let's do more sorting these things we want to get rid of. Let's do some updates. Let's do some 2.0s, you know, let's get an upgrade here. And we don't get our identities so attached. Like we don't think that it means that we're bad people. It's just a lot easier to do the personal growth work than if we have this moralistic framework that there's something shameful, bad and wrong about me. So that's a big piece of what we detox in the early stages. It's big piece. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of even just like having to not only work with those feelings as they come up, but even just having to recognize 
and maybe even like place a name to or uh, yes. some some sort of identifying what's coming up and then you know giving that mm -hmm. that piece compassion and knowing no you're not a terrible human no you're just imperfect there's a you're a normal human like me look we both get triggered let's bond around that yes you yes. tell me your triggers i'll tell you mine let me map out my defenses let me tell you how bitchy i can get if i'm super reactive like i withdraw and i stonewall and i might lash out at you and i you know like these are the things that my protective parts do when they're feeling threatened what do yours do Girl, same right okay so now we can be a little bit more playful with those parts of ourselves and then we ask i wonder what needs those parts of us are trying to get met what is the need that they're trying to meet? I mean, one of the most profound things that there are two things that Marshall said, one of them that I find very profound. One was or helpful. Every single thing we do is nothing more than an attempt to meet a need. Mm -hmm. So if we can look at every behavior instead of it being good behavior or bad behavior, but we see it as an attempt to meet a need, sometimes tragic, often self-sabotaging, not necessarily aligned with actually meeting the need, but it's an attempt. And we want to honor the good intentions and we get curious about the need. I'm really wanting safety. I'm really wanting a sense of security. And then we put our attention on that need for safety and security. We can refine our strategies to be more aligned with, well, what actually brings safety? Does lashing out bring safety? No, not so much. So how do I hold on to safety, but I find a new way of getting it because this thing that I was taught to do or that I started doing isn't working. So I start seeing the ways in which my own behaviors can meet my own needs better. Mm. That's one thing is this idea of um, every behavior is an attempt to meet a need, very liberating. Um, the other thing that I always loved that Marshall used to say was that anything worth doing is worth doing badly. So the reason that I love that is that um, there's, I have a lot of perfectionism in me. And so when I learn a communication model, I can get very performance-based. Like, am I doing it right? Do I have the right words? You know, maybe if things go badly, it's because I didn't perform in the right way and I didn't say it right. And I didn't have the right energy. And, and it can become another toxic way of judging ourselves and not working with ourselves. So I often remind myself, no, 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 it's okay that anything worth doing is worth doing badly. You're allowed to be bad at this. You don't have to be good at it, but it's worth it. Like, and that has often kept me in the process, which has paid a lot of dividends in the long run. Because if I came with my perfectionistic self, I probably would have bailed on this journey long ago. Yeah, I really, I really like that. Uh, mm -hmm. At least that, uh, I like both of them, both of those quotes, but that second mm -hmm. one really, I think, yeah. gets at this attempt of like, I don't think I could, I don't even think I could, could even start this because, I mean, that just seems like a, something that's kind of out of my reach. It's like, it is out of your reach right now. At the moment. Yeah. But it won't be one day. Yeah, yeah. If you're allowed to be bad at it, it won't be one day. One day you'll get good at it, right? So. So, so let's say the listener now is, is thinking, okay, okay, I am going to, um, maybe approach uh, maybe a conversation more deliberately and um, maybe go about trying to implement NVC. And I've been doing a little bit of internal work. I think it's maybe my time. Uh, and so they go at it and they kind of, they kind of, you know, flop a little bit. Um, and maybe this is where uh, you, you had mentioned uh, self-compassion 
should maybe come into play. And, you know, it's not even, it's not even practicing in VC is when self-compassion should come into play. Um, I would almost argue every moment, but uh, could you, could you describe, I know you have some trainings on self-compassion. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's practicing greeting myself with love. So here I am, I'm doing my best to be all nonviolent and I know the right way to speak, which is not actually in the model, but I have these old domination ideas and, you know, I, I end up in an argument with my partner and I feel like I'm doing the best that I can, but it just isn't working. Um, and we end up in an argument and there's a lot of disconnection. I go home and I think, you know, why do I even bother? I'm never going to be good at this. Yeah. And, you know, there, maybe there's just something fundamentally wrong with me that I'm not wired this way. Okay. So this is a way in which I, I take what's happening and then I turn on myself. And the way that I turn on myself is that I get stuck in the old thinking of what is wrong with me. And then I come up with all of these theories of what would be wrong with me. You know, and as an aside, as a psychologist, I love those people because they show up for therapy because they have some idea that there's something wrong with them. And then they come into therapy and they're like, now you tell me what's wrong with me so I can fix it so I can have good relationships. And usually the first piece is there's nothing wrong with you. Okay. And there's actually nothing wrong with them. So that's the first piece we work with. And, and what we do instead is the sense, so I'm just going to go back into my own example. When I raised my voice, I start looking at what are the things that I did or that I didn't do or that I said or that I didn't say that I wish I had said, right? Those are the only four things that are ever happening, what I did or didn't do and what I said or didn't say. Mm. So you can even make like a little quadrant and you, you can start filling them out. What are the behaviors? What are the words? And then I can go through each one of them and I can say, so when I increased the volume and I turned up my voice and I began yelling, what was I feeling in that moment? I was feeling an urgency. I was feeling a lot of pressure. I was feeling really stressed out. I had a sense of desperation. And what was my need in that moment? I had such a deep desire to be heard. I had such a deep desire to be heard. I wanted to get through to someone. I wanted understanding. I really wanted to be understood and heard. Okay. And then settle into the beauty of that. Okay. Is there anything wrong with wanting to be seen and heard? Of course not. Every human wants to be seen and heard. Did turning up the volume, was that an effective strategy? Did the other person say, thank goodness you started speaking more loudly because I wasn't able to hear you before, but now I hear you. The yelling has been so helpful. Could you turn up the intensity in the future? Because that really helps me hear you. Okay. Now, if they're giving me that feedback, then that's a well-aligned strategy. But usually what happens when I turn up the volume is they close down. Mm -hmm. So when I can sit and go, it's not that I'm doing a bad thing. It's not that there's something wrong with me. It's not that they, you know, have a hearing issue. It's that when we increase the volume and the intensity in the space, people's defensive systems get more activated and there's more resistance and there's less capacity. So if my need is to be heard and understood, what else could I do in that moment that is really in service of my own needs? And then I get to try something new, but not at the expense of my own dignity, not because there's something bad about me, but because I'm in a learning and growth frame. There's just this thing that I've habitually been doing that isn't working. 
And what can I do that actually meets my needs differently so that I can learn and grow without losing self-respect? Wow. How's that for an example? Does that capture some of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really like too that it's this idea that, you know, we're constantly in a learning and growing environment. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are, you know? Yeah. Constantly learning and growing. Yeah. Yeah, I find that, I find that interesting just to hear, uh, kind of definitely, uh, stories of, you know, the way parents talk with children and how that is, I mean, I think that's, a a very controlling and I have to control kind of environment because, you know, they're my kids and, um, you know, it's, I have a parenting course where one of the things that I ask parent is what is the number, what is the number one job of a parent? And, you know, 85% of the time I get some answer, like to control the kids. (laughs) Control or connect. Yes. And so then I, and then I said to them, what would parenting be like if your number one goal as a parent, your number one job as a parent was to get to know your kids? Totally different. Totally. I really like the question too of what if, you know, or what would it be like this? And I I wonder if that could kind of play into those questions that you ask yourself of uh, when you're trying to, you know, integrate this self-compassion and these four quadrants of Mm -hmm. what would it be like if I lowered my voice next time or tried to keep it into a more Mm -hmm. calmer environment? And what would it be like if you and I are in an argument and I said to you, um, I'm noticing myself getting super activated and I can feel this urgency coming up in me because I, I have this deep need to be seen and understood in this moment. Can you tell me back what you're hearing me say? Can you just tell me back three things you've heard me say in the last 10 minutes that are meaningful? Mm. That would really help me feel like I'm being received. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think from my own personal experience, I've tried that or I haven't tried that actually. It's come up to where just ask right now, just ask right now, like what's something, uh, just ask what's something that I've said that, you know, yeah. really impacted you or landed with you. And yeah. Um, so that's on my own journey of trying to actually, it's like the steps are going on inside my head and like, you just have to act on them now. And, um, yeah. But that also goes into doing that internal work. Yep. Before. And also, you know, the next thing that people learn on their journey, I'm sure you've come across this already is, when the other person says, really, now you want to, you know, micromanage exactly what I'm allowed to put in the space, (laughs) you know, like it's also learning how to then stay in connection with the things that are going to come back your way. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it'll be something easy to field and sometimes not so easy to field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely one thing that I've been curious about is, you know, we've, I put this NVC model to, to the test, not even to the test. I've tried it out for my own situation. Other person doesn't respond the way I thought they would. Yep. Yep. Now. Yep. Now you have four choices. You can hear it as criticism and blame and criticize and blame them back. 
You can hear it as criticism and blame and turn on yourself and think that there's something wrong with you. You can drop down into your own feelings and needs in that moment and figure out, wow, what's happening for me? What is the impact of this on me right now? And you can reveal that. Or you can switch gears and tune into what they might have been feeling or needing as they said that thing and try to bring that more consciously into the conversation mm. and guess at their feelings and needs. Right. I really right. like the guessing too is like, you don't have to be right, but at no. least try. Yeah, yeah. We're not here to be mind readers. We're just here to shine a flashlight on the kind that the quality of information that we're interested in. Mm. I really like that. Yeah. Kind of going, um, turning on this uh, the self compassion concept, and I think too a lot of like self talk is involved. Yeah. Uh, but there's, yeah, it's it's like is it your I'm wondering if there's a bunch of different techniques to self-compassion. Is it just, you know, I have tested out the idea of cradling the thoughts like a baby and saying, yeah. it's okay. It's okay. Yes, um, I love that. Yeah, I didn't know if you had any uh, specific techniques that you've kind of recommended. Yeah. So it really, it depends on what's getting triggered. But here, here's some things that people can think about. Um, the parts of us that get triggered tend to be younger parts. And so finding out how old this trigger is, is this my 15 year old that's triggered? Is this my five year old that's triggered? Is this a two year old that's triggered? Like trying to give a little bit of an age to what is the trigger? Is it coming with a lot of submission energy? Is it coming with rebellious energy? You know, what is the quality of that? And then imagining into what I would have needed at 10 for example, or what I needed when I was 16. Um, and then, you know, um, greeting this part of me that I used to judge with a lot more tenderness. You know what, I really, I get it that you have huge needs for choice um, and freedom and autonomy and respect up right now. And I will sit and listen to you. This other person out here, they don't have the capacity to sit and listen to us, but I'm gonna sit and listen to you because you're an aspect of my experience that needs to be acknowledged, allowed, embraced, and integrated. Because the pieces of us that get triggered are often exiled parts. This is from like the internal family system structure, right? They're parts that we were taught were bad and needed to be made to go away. And so part of the work of becoming whole again is reclaiming all of those parts and letting them know they all get a seat at the table, but they're not the final decision makers. But the way that we soothe a three-year-old is different than a seven-year-old and is different than a 17-year-old. They need it in a different style, in a different form, because there's different developmental needs that didn't get met. And so we keep our wise witnessing, observing self, you know, the part that we really um, cultivate through mindfulness practices and contemplative practices, the part of us that doesn't get too identified with our ego. We keep this part of ourselves online and they get to make the decisions. They get to be sovereign, but they're going to be the kind of king or queen or sovereign ruler or, you know, whatever, you know, works as an image where everybody fits, everybody belongs. Nobody is going to be excluded, fragmented, judged, exiled. And so some of this is about really allowing all of those voices. We don't judge it as childish. We, we, we welcome the inner children. 
We don't judge it as petty and dismiss it the way we were dismissed as children. We understand that there's some valuable nugget of treasure that we want to go and reclaim. So it's really a practice of allowing, embracing, acknowledging, naming, um, giving voice to all of the different parts of ourselves without freaking out that just giving them a voice means they're deciding everything. It doesn't. But they, they need empathy. They need to be seen. They need to be heard. They want to be integrated. They all carry energetic, um, well, energy. They, they all carry like psychic energy. And we want that all available to us. We don't want to be spending the rest of our lives in so much inner conflict, repressing and suppressing and amplifying and micromanaging the whole internal state. It's lovely when everything gets integrated and becomes part of the whole orchestra of being. You know, this is how we make the music of our lives by getting everybody to play together well. Wow. Yeah. I really like that. I really yeah. like that. it's like, yeah, not not trying to push away and just acknowledging it doesn't mean that it's going to take over. Yeah. Would you say that these uh this would also help for um if one is in like fear that a mm -hmm. certain emotion will come up mm -hmm. in the future? as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think about our stress response system, you know, our defensive system, the fear-based system will either freeze up, it'll flee, or it'll fight. Mm. That's what we're worried for. And so, you know, fear will sometimes, if it's really, um, you know, like depending on if you've had a lot of trauma, sometimes fear can freeze you up and have you like escape your body. You can completely dissociate and you leave the building. You're not even present. Mm. So in those moments, again, it's very, very important not to think that anything is wrong. It's to see that as a superpower. Look, look at how great, look at how amazingly resilient I was. Mm. I'm able to freeze up and leave the building in order to anesthetize myself from a pain that I don't want to feel. Mm -hmm. That is, that meets my needs for safety, for security, for self-management, for alleviation of suffering. This is a helpful strategy. Mm -hmm. And the journey is about just having more strategies online, that I don't have to do that. You know, where the suffering comes from is when I don't have agency over this defense. And I feel like it's got so much unconscious momentum and power that it hijacks me. So to the degree that I feel like there are parts of myself that have power over me, I'm not going to enjoy it. Yeah. And so nonviolence is also a journey of developing a different relationship with power. It's about grounding your sense of empowerment in a, in a, a deep interior trust of self. And that trust of self comes online the more that my witnessing wise consciousness is in charge and for me, she can be in charge to the degree that all of the subjects within are not working against her. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to work against her to the degree that they get empathy, acknowledgement, integration, you know, a place and a role. So that's a lot of that inner work is, is creating a lot of internal space in the internal container for everybody to fit. And for anger to be okay, for grief to be okay, for dissociation to be okay, for trauma to get healed, for all of these pieces to not freak me out anymore. And the more that I do that internal work, the more capacity I have to stay present when it is happening outside of me. Mm 
Now, when you get angry, if I've dealt with all my internal anger and you freak out, I can enjoy your anger and I can stay connected to you in your anger because I have the capacity to feel your anger because I feel it all of mine. I've done it inside of me. I'm not needing to avoid it anymore. I can be present to it. And the first practice ground is present to it inside of me. And then the second practice ground is present to it outside of me. Dr. Yvette Erasmus. <laughs> wow. I really enjoy this. Uh... Uh, kind of like castle metaphor of really just keeping a keeping a space for everyone to to help each other kind of you know form a, a better union of you yes exactly yes and then as we do that inside of us we heal the fragmentation inside that's a prerequisite in a way or maybe it's mutually influential it'll also heal the fragments outside of us yeah, yeah. i've said yeah. this before this is a ramdas quote but you know the best thing that i can do for you is work on myself yes you know another thing that he said that i love is um and i'm pretty sure this was ramdas is all we're ever doing is walking one another home yeah yeah, uh, yeah I love those. Fan. thank you well dr eva erasmus we've covered a lot of amazing ground today mm -hmm. um, as we you know start to wrap up i was wondering if you had any suggested readings or if you had any um you know workshops and in, in the works oh yeah so every wednesday morning um at 10 a.m central time i run a free group um, it's a Zoom group. It's it's Q and A, you know. So um, people can drop in at any point to that group on Wednesday mornings, and we do a lot of exploring of how we apply these principles of nonviolence and positive psychology and integral theory into the relationships of our lives. So that's a really easy way if, if people wanted to ever drop in, ask a question, you know, if you're on your journey and you're like, I said this, and then they said that, and now I'm stuck. That's the kind of stuff we sort of dive into together um, on those. Um, you know, if if it's nonviolent communication, there's the nonviolentcommunicationtraining.com, NVC Academy, um, where there's loads and loads of online learning, um, you know, and groups. You can always find a local practice group. I run a lot locally. Actually, my groups tend to be we have a quite an international with with zoom and the pandemic at the moment people are joining from everywhere so it's kind of exciting we, we're no longer as limited to our local you know places but there's a lot of free resources on my website and on youtube so i would i would just direct people to everything that's free first and find out if it resonates you know yeah thank you well, thank you so much, Dr. Yvette Erasmus. I really My pleasure. I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you for having me. And so this has been a compassion talk with Dr. Yvette Erasmus. Thanks again. Awesome.